Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Episcopal Church in Vero Beach, Florida. We are glad to have you join us. Anglican 101, a history of the Anglican Communion, led by Father Christopher Rodriguez, is a dynamic and educational study that vividly teaches how the Anglican Church was established, beginning with the Old Testament and continuing through present day. We're going to get started. Today is session five, and we're going to look at the growth and the expansion of the Church of England as it uh, as it left England and went overseas. Uh, actually, the, the American colonies were the first place that the Church of England expanded out into, which is kind of interesting. I mean, aside from Scotland and Ireland and so forth on the, on the uh, island in, of England. But, um, but the American colonies were the first sort of experiment in this, what would burgeon into the Anglican Communion. Just so you know, today we're going to talk about the uh, expansion of the, Angl- the Church of England into the Americas, into the United States, into the colonies. We're going to get into, we're going to wrap up with the American Church, and then next week we're going to talk about the Anglican Communion at large the, as a sort of big picture. And I, hopefully I can wrap this up by next week, um, unless you guys want to keep talking about stuff. So uh, anyway, and I'm going to try to do, if I can wrap up the Anglican Communion next week, and maybe a little bit about Anglican theology, theological method, maybe we'll do that, and then we'll be done. Could be two more weeks, but definitely at least one more week. Is that a deal? Okay, so today, chapter five, growth and expansion of the church in England. Uh, before we dive into that, let's look at session four. Let's review. You guys remember we talked about last week that the, that the, Reformation, uh, the Reformation in England was different in a lot of ways than the Reformation was on the continent, primarily because the continental reformers, Calvin, Luther, Zwingli, all those guys, those are household names. You don't know them, right? They were, they were more theologically based, if you will. I mean, Luther was certainly motivated by theology, and Calvin and Haas and all these different guys, motivated by corruption in the Roman church and also just a different view of looking at God's grace, right, and law. Um, that was the Continental Reformers. The Reformation in the Church of England was different. It started off more as a political movement, that is the king asserting his authority as the king and, and asserting the authority of the Archbishop of Canterbury over and against the Bishop of Rome. And um, so that's just something important to remember. The English church was influenced, we're gonna get, we got to that last week, was influenced by the Protestant Reformers, right? Remember Ed, little Eddie, the king? Edward VI, nine-year-old king, uh, he was heavily influenced by the Protestant reformers on the continent, and that sort of swung back and forth, if you recall, between Prati and Catholic, and the Protestants would take power, they'd kill the Catholics, the Catholics come to power, they'd kill the Protestants, and you know, nothing like a church fight, right? So, uh, so anyway, Elizabeth, where we landed last week, was Elizabeth was brilliant, politically brilliant, and a strong woman, uh, she was able to navigate something called the Via Media, or the Middle Way, and it is essentially a middle way between Continental Reformation Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. Does that make sense? Anybody, you talk, if you guys go up, particularly up north and places um, more liberal than here in some ways, people will refer to in the church as the Via Media as the middle way between liberal and conservative. That is a new way of using that term. The Via Media has historically met the middle way or a middle, a middle way between Romanism and Protestantism. And the reason was Elizabeth was the queen, right? And she had to keep all these people together and stop killing each other. So that's what the Via Media is all about. Is that clear? So when people say to you, are you guys Catholics? 
In one sense, we are, because we believe in apostolic succession. We've got a Catholic view of, the, of holy orders and all that. We're going to get to that today. Are you Protestant? Yes, we are in some ways, because our theology is influenced by the continental reformers. So the Via Media, we kind of take the best of both worlds. Does that make sense? Um, and it's not a new thing. It's actually a return to an old thing. Is that clear, everybody? Okay. Um, so, and, and in fact, one thing which you, if you stick around in Anglicanism long enough, and we're going to look at this today, there's always been this sort of tension between, well, are we Catholic or are we Protestant? And it's a good question. The answer is yes. <laughs> uh, and then if you go too far one way or the other, you can get a little bit weird, but usually if you can stay within this via media, this broad middle, if you will, of opinion, you can be an Anglican. You can be a, you can, James and I were talking about this the other day, you can be a five-point Calvinist or an Arminian. Don't worry about what that means, but there are two different ways of looking at God's election and predestination. You can be either of those two things and still fall in the realm of Anglican theology. Does that make sense, everybody? So, it's important. I mean, I was saying to somebody last night, I think one of the reasons that the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion in particular have been under such assault in the past 50 or 60 years, 100 years, is because if we could actually get our stuff together as Anglicans, we could be a huge bridge between garden variety Protestantism and the Roman Church. But we'll see. That's in God's providence. Any other questions about that? I want to give you a, I want to give you a word today, which sounds like a nerd, nerdy church word, and I guess it kind of is in a way, but it is the word ecclesiology. It just rolls off the tongue. Ecclesiology, the word, if you don't know what that means, the word for church is the word ecclesia. And it's two words, it's a compound word in Greek. Ecclesia means those who are called out, what the church means. How do you get from the English word church from ecclesia? I haven't the foggiest idea. But, but ecclesiology is the study or the theology of the church. It's an important question. What is the church? Is that clear? It's a huge question because the answer to that question determines how you do your theological method. So let me give you an example. Ecclesiology, the study of the church, the theological study of the church. What is the church? Um, in the Roman Catholic Church, they say, well, it's us, right? So, and they, they kind of get weird about this, but they will refer to, I think, it used to be that non-Roman Catholics were referred to as separated brethren. But here's the question, right? If you are the Roman Catholic Church and you believe that you are the one true church, which is what they believe, then there is no such thing as the church outside of the Roman Church. Does that make sense? Okay, so you may disagree with that as an Anglican. I do as an Anglican. But to understand what they perceive of themselves is crucially important. For example, you ever go to a Roman Catholic church and they say, if you're not a Roman Catholic, you can't receive communion. Well, it's not because they're being mean or angry. It's because you're not in the church. Okay, now you would disagree with that as an Anglican. I would disagree with it as an Anglican. But from their understanding of who they are, you're not in it. And so therefore, you can't receive communion. Does that make sense? And actually, the Orthodox Church kind of come at this the same way. They would say, the, again, remember the great, the great schism we talked about, the two splits, the East and West? The Orthodox have a very similar ecclesiology, an understanding of who they are, right? They are the church. If you're not Orthodox, you're not in the church, which is why if you go to an Orthodox church, you can't receive communion there either. Why? Because you're not a Christian. Is that clear? 
Now, again, you may disagree with that, and you probably do, unless you are a Roman Catholic or an Orthodox. Um, I, was I was up at John's Island last week meeting somebody for lunch, and the guy, one of the guards there, he said, hey, Father, and we got in a little conversation, and he said, ah, I'm a Roman Catholic, but I don't believe in the infallibility of the Pope. And I said, you're not a Roman Catholic at all. You're an, Angl an Anglican like God intended. <laughs> and we had a great laugh about it. But it's, but it's true. To be a Roman Catholic, you must believe in the um, supremacy of the Pope, the infallibility of the Pope, the virgin uh, birth of, sorry, the immaculate conception of Mary, right? You can believe that as an Anglican if you want to. As a Roman Catholic, you must believe it to be saved. So. Anyway, that's ecclesiology. It sounds like a really uh, remote kind of thing. It's really important because if you look at, well, an Anglican ecclesiology, what do we say about ourselves? We would say we are a part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, but we're not the whole of it. Does that make sense? Remember the branch theory we talked about a while back? That we believe that we are a branch of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, but we are not the totality of it. Right? Is that clear? So all three of these groups, the Roman Catholics, the Orthodox, and the Anglicans, disagree on what, who we, what we are. And so you gotta start there to make everything else kind of fall in line and make sense. Protestants, that's a very good question, because a Protestant, and again, this is a really big bucket, um, what is a Protestant view of the church? They would probably say, depending upon who you ask, uh, that the, a church is somebody who has made the Jesus prayer and believes in the authority of the Bible. It would be a Christian, I'm sorry. But again, Protestant ecclesiology varies depending upon what group you are a part of. Modern day contemporary evangelicals would pretty much say if you're baptized and you are, you've said the Jesus prayer or whatever, you've given your life to the Lord, whatever that means, uh, then you are a Christian, okay? Again, that's a different view than historically has been, has been the case. So it's just an important conversation. We're not gonna go down this rabbit trail too far today, but I want you to be aware of it because you can answer, you can have a lot better conversations with people who are Orthodox, Roman Catholics, or other Protestant groups if you understand their, their self-concept of what they are. Is that clear, everybody? Hugely important. Yes, Lynn. No. No, they're not, they're not permitted to. Yes, that's a good question. So remember way back when the Great Schism in 1054, the, uh, the Patriarch of Constantinople excommunicated the, uh, the Patriarch of Rome. Could someone get that door, please? Uh, so they both excommunicated each other. So the Orthodox would say that the Roman Catholics are schismatics. The Roman Catholics would say the Orthodox are schismatics. And so they can't receive communion from one another. Interestingly, though, here's another, a little a sort of funny thing. If you, someone told me this uh, way back, if you are Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, and you are, there's no Orthodox church you can make it to to receive communion, you go to the Anglicans. There's a lady, a lady who comes here, I don't know what her name is, and speak any English. She's a Middle Eastern of some variety, uh, but she'll come here to 8 o'clock service, mass sometimes, with her head covered. She's a little thing, doesn't speak a word of English but receives communion and then leaves. She's Orthodox, it's just cool. Anyway, any other comments or questions? Very important idea, sounds nerdy, but it's important for you confirmands. So, let's move along. So Elizabeth dies in 1603. Charles I is the king, we're gonna get to him in a minute. And this guy, by the name of William Laud, the Archbishop of Canterbury, is, becomes the Archbishop of Canterbury. He is a, he is a high churchman, 
um, meaning he believes in the, the divine right of kings, he believes in the efficacy of the sacraments, he believes in the apostolic succession, all that stuff. This guy is a rock star. He's one of my favorites, actually. Archbishop Laud, who was, uh, came to power, was the Archbishop of Canterbury, right before the Puritans came in and killed everybody all over again. Nothing like a church fight. So uh, he, uh, Laud and Charles I, were trying to drive out the Puritans. The Puritans were a group of people coming into the Church of England and trying to impose a very rigorous moralism. Right? That's where the word Puritan comes from. The pilgrims on the Mayflower left England. Know why? Because of that dude. <laughs> they were leaving England because they were Puritans in the Church of England, and they were being prosecuted, persecuted rather, by the Church of England, and they left to come here. The Quakers, same kind of deal. So a lot of people went to the Americas to escape that guy and the Church of England, whom they deemed to be uh, oppressive. The reason being, the Puritans were getting rid of uh, priests and bishops and all that jazz. It was all about this rigorous movement within the church. Um, anyway, so the Puritans and the, and the Anglicans were kind of duking it out. The King James Bible comes to, into uh, existence in 1611. The King James Bible, of course, is a marvelous piece of English literature. And if you're not used to reading it, it's very difficult to read. I knew a guy that, I, when I was curate, I worked for a, a priest by the name of Father Eddie Ricks, whom George and Bell know well. Eddie Ricks has been raised on the King James Bible, and when he reads it, it's beautiful. Poetry, and it's clear, but you can't read it like it's punctuated. So anyway, the King James Bible, one of the great uh, hallmarks of uh, English. Uh, of, Amer of English. So, King Charles I, he was, uh, he was the king, whilst this guy was the Archbishop of Canterbury. King Charles I, son of James VI, became the King of England, believed in the divine right of kings. He also was a high churchman. He and Laud were uh, king and Archbishop of Canterbury. And then the Puritans came along, and King Charles I was martyred by Oliver Cromwell in 1649. So, uh, and the monarchy, if you know your English history, we're not going to spend any time on this, was disestablished in 1660. Uh, I'm sorry, was disestablished when he was executed and then reestablished in 1660. It's a big, ugly, mess, messy part of English history. But I will point out to you something very, I'm not sure if you can see this or not, but that dude has the coolest shoes. Can you see him? <laughs> I'm not a shoe guy, just so you know. I were. I wore uh, Allen Edmonds, and that's pretty much the extent of it, but those are some wicked shoes, man. King, interesting little nugget about King Charles I. He is the only, here's an interesting little nugget about him. There is a group called the Society of King Charles the Martyr. King Charles is the only uniquely Anglican saint. Because remember, Anglicans believe that since the church broke apart, there's no unified church anymore, right? We're all pieces of it. So how would you, how would you make somebody a new saint? So Anglicans will put people on our calendar, like C.S. Lewis and different people, but we would never call somebody a saint because we've got no mechanism of making them except for that guy. Now, if you're an Anglican and you're going to make that guy a saint, how do you do it? What do you think? An act of parliament. So Henry the King Charles I was made and is the only Anglican saint, St. Charles the Martyr. He's the only one by an act of parliament. Parliament. That's how you do it, right? In a state church. So it's kind of a cool thing. Guys, he should have gotten executed for wearing those shoes, man. 
Anyhow, let's move along. So let's go into uh, Paul quickly. Well, the bishops sit in, in parliament, right? They sit in the ha- they, bishops vote. They're part of it. Again, that's a rabbit trail I don't want to get into. Uh, I, but anyhow, um, so the empire expands. Now, remember that people like Charles I and others believed in the divine right of kings, right? So as the empire expands, they bring their church with them, right? And the king is the, is the uh, secular head of the church. The bishops run it from a spiritual sense. But the king of England believed himself to be the uh, person in charge of the secular affairs and the safety of the Church of England. And it wasn't just a power thing. They really believed that as a matter of theology. Paul says this in Ephesians, right, isn't it, where he talks about being subject to the divine rulers because they are put there by God for your safety, right? Um, Honor the king, Paul says. So it sounds foreign to us because we rebelled against all that stuff, but just Bear in mind, when you understand how the church kind of unfolds and the problems with the Methodists, for example, which we'll get to in a second, it makes a lot of sense when you understand that the English come at it from the divine right of kings and that this is all headquartered back in London, even as the empire expands. Is that clear? So the empire expands. The Church of England goes overseas, and it is part of the American colonies. That right there is the flag of the American colonies, if you're not familiar with that. Uh, Anybody been to the Jamestown colony? It's really cool. If there's a, uh, it's a recreation of it. A little tiny uh, parish church at the Jamestown Colony. They did morning prayer, the daily office morning prayer and evening prayer every day. Two sermons a day. And uh, Pocahontas, you heard of her? Was a famous convert. She was an Anglican like God intended. But interestingly, the Jamestown Colony had a, a priest, Right? He, was the, he would run it. Of course, you don't need a priest to have the daily office. A layperson can run that, as some of you do. But uh, just get the, the idea being that in Virginia, which is where a lot of uh, the early English settlements took place because of tobacco and stuff, um, the, uh, the English were very, had a very strong presence there. And in fact, the Church of England was the official religion of the Virginia colony. Right? Pennsylvania, as you may know, was, did not have a religious affiliation, which is why the Quakers and all those people went to Pennsylvania. Um, but in, in Virginia, if you were a Christian, by God, you were an Anglican, like God intended. Make sense? Again. So the Church of England in the colonies, it grows. By, rev, by, the, rev, by the time of the Revolution, the American Revolution, the Church of England was the second largest denomination. What was the largest one? I don't know. Probably the Roman Church, but I don't know for sure. Um, There were 400 churches by the time of the American Revolution, 300 clergy, and Anglicans were present in all of the colonies. You'll see here, here are the colonies, and as the Church of England was established, they would build churches, they would create cures and dioceses, and areas that the priest was responsible for, your parish. A parish is a geographical area that a clergyman was responsible for all the people in that parish that were Anglicans. Um, you know the old joke? Now, you may have noticed something here. The uh, Anglicans are located in the colonies, but people live outside of the colonies, right? You know the old joke that as the, as the, as the, as the, uh, as the Americas were missionized, um, there's an old, an old canard that the, uh, the Baptists went on foot, the Methodists went on horseback, and the Anglicans went by train. <laughs> so... It's true, if you drive around in like rural Pennsylvania or like in, um, which back then would have been the, the sticks, you won't find many Episcopal churches that are old. You might find them that have been built in the last 
80 years or so, but you'll find tons of Methodist churches and Baptist churches and so forth. Why? Because they went out and they could get clergy, which we're going to get to that in a second. The point I want you to see here is Anglicans were kind of limited to the colonies. Why? You had to have a priest and they didn't have any bishops. You had to go to England to get ordained to the priesthood because you're still under the Church of England. Make sense? Okay, so that gets gets messy, which we're going to get to in a second when it comes to other denominations. Any questions so far, friends? Am I keeping your attention today? I'm feeling, I'm feeling a little bit off, so I'm trying my best. Okay, good. Um, two things I want you to understand, which is pretty cool. As the Church of England expands, and actually as the Church of England begins to grow, there are different missionary societies that went out and, and were missionaries. Again, there was a high church group and a low church group. Because those are the good old days when you could fight about stuff like candles on the altar. Um, the, the, the low church group was called the Church Missionary Society, the CMS. Uh, the high church group was called the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in Foreign Parts, or the SPG, which you'll see there. It was a high church missionary society. It was known for having high moral standards, uh, being very rigorous in their preaching and their um, and their pre uh, preaching of the gospel. Their, the SPG was, I read, dug this up somewhere, that they were very active in conversion, in the conversion of Congregationalists and non-Anglicans. So they're pretty, they're pretty, hard, pretty hardcore. And somebody, Thomas Jefferson, referred to the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel as Anglican Jesuits. That's pretty cool. The SPG is still in existence. It no longer has the fire that it once had, but perhaps someday it will. But if you look at, um, and we'll look at this next, next week, if you look at different provinces of the Anglican Communion in Africa, for example, the provinces which were, which were missionized by the SPG are very high church. The provinces that were missionized by the CMS, the Church Missionary Society, are very low church. So for example, if you are the Bishop of Northern Malawi in, this, in the province of Central Africa, Bishop, and Bishop, uh, uh, what was his name? Not Magangani was here a couple years ago. He's a very high church guy. If you go to Nigeria, for example, very low church. So, and it's kind of a fun thing. I mean, it's kind of a, it's not, they all believe the same stuff, they all get along, but just a difference in emphasis. So anyway, the Americans have a problem. So the, as, the, as, the, um, as the colonies begin to expand, we, they have a problem because if, and to be an Anglican, you have to have a priest to celebrate the Eucharist. Uh, and so you need to have priests to build new churches, and they don't have any. To be, a, to be a, a, an Anglican priest, you have to be ordained by a bishop in England. So you've got to jump on a boat, go across the pond, get made a deacon, come back, serve as a deacon, then go back across the pond again. That's dangerous and expensive. And so, um, and the other problem with this whole arrangement is when you take, as an Anglican priest, when you or when you are ordained to the priesthood, you take, or the, be a bishop, you have to take an oath of loyalty to the crown. Do you see the problem? Because in the midst of all this growth, there's a little thing called the American Revolution cooking. So um, they had to go back to England to take an oath of loyalty to the crown, which they did do, uh, but it, it creates a big clergy shortage, which actually is interesting about where the Methodists come from. Anybody here from a Methodist background at one point? Um, Methodists are Charles Wesley, who was the mover of the uh, Methodist movement, initially called the Wesleyans. He's a very, uh, he was a high churchman, a very strong preacher of the gospel, and very mission focused. I don't know if he was an SPG priest or not, but he was 
very much in a missionary mindset. The problem is they couldn't get priests, right? They had to go to England and, go, and it was difficult. So Wesley said, you know what? We're just gonna plant churches without them. And they would actually ordain men uh, by, by a priest laying on hands and charging them with this new enterprise. Now here's the problem. Can, you, can a priest ordain a priest? No. So the Methodists, it seems like a small thing, but it's actually a hugely important thing because Wesley was a mission-minded, mission-focused Anglican, like he should have been. They couldn't get priests to come and help serve, so they just said, well, we're just gonna do it our own way. And they started, and they just started to send out guys and out they went. And they were very effective in planting churches and missionizing people in the sticks, like, you know, Pennsylvania back then, or Missouri, whoo, that's way out there. Um, but it's actually interesting. Sometimes they'll refer to the, you know, if you read histories of this period of time, they will refer to it as the, the Wesleyan schism. It's kind of a shame because Wesley, Wesley, Wesley was a great guy and he wrote great hymns, as you know, he and his, his brother. But they broke from the Church of England for lack of bishops. And then the, finally, the Church of the Anglicans and the Americans said, we got to do something about this. Um, so, um, the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel elects a guy named Father, Father Samuel Seabury to the Episcopate, right? He's elected here. He has to go to England to be made a, pre, made a bishop, and the Church of England says, no. So what are you going to do? Well, what the Anglicans in the United States did, because again, this is all tied in with the American Revolution, the Boston Tea Party, and all this dissension in the colonies, and the Church of England says, we're not going to give you guys a bishop, because then you're going to be going, you know, having more independence. So the Americans go, all right, fine. And they went to Scotland. The Americans did. Went to Scotland, had a, a Father Seabury was consecrated a bishop by the Scottish Episcopal Church, right? Which was also uh, English, but not under the crown directly. I'm not exactly sure of all the politics and all this, but the American church started by Seabury, consecrated in Scotland in 1785, then he returns to Connecticut. So if you ever hear the name Seabury floating around, that's the dude they're talking about. Seabury is a university in, uh, where is it, Sewanee? Seabury is the is a seminary in Sewanee, which is in Seabury Church in Groton, Connecticut. So there he is. So he was, he was consecrated by the Scots, Finally, uh, the Church of England, uh, after the war, uh, says, okay, fine. And they consent and they allow. Uh, then James Madison, who's that, that fellow right there, he is consecrated by the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1790, right? So it kind of reestablishes the connection with the Church of England. Again, Seabury was consecrated by a bishop in apostolic succession, right? There's not, that was never a problem. But with, with James Madison, uh, who's a probably a, house, a familiar name. He was the Bishop of Virginia, a lot of Anglicans in Virginia, as you know, and he was consecrated by the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1790. Anybody here from Virginia? You can't swing a cat without hitting an Episcopal church in Virginia. Why? That's where the English were, right? Anybody ever been to the uh, Williams, Williamsburg? I've been there. Kathy and I um, were there once with our kids, and it's really cool. They've got, a, they've got a Church of England parish in Williamsburg. It's an Episcopal church now, but uh, it's a very low church parish, but it's, it's cool. So, um, par and, and interestingly, Parliament provided for uh, Madison to be consecrated without an oath to the king. So, that's that. Um, and then we see another, another uh, 
things begin to move, we see the American succession begin to take place. You have these different bishops that have gone. So um, uh, Madison goes to England. He's consecrated by the Archbishop of Canterbury. And then finally, you have three bishops that are Americans, three American bishops, and they consecrate uh, this guy named uh, uh, Claggett. He is the first, you with me? He is the first bishop of the American church consecrated by American bishops. That's him. So if anybody here is from Philadelphia, you know that William White was the rector at Christ Church in Philadelphia, where George Washington worshipped, if you care about these things. But so Seabury, Madison, and William White consecrated this dude, Claggett, who was the first American bishop consecrated by American bishops. Why three? Remember, Church of England believes very strongly in the apostolic succession. So you have three you have three bishops. We still do this today. At least three bishops. Those are miters on top of their heads. Those are... You have to have three bishops lay their hands on a person to make them a bishop. Why three? You could use just one, but Anglicans have always used, used three in case one of those guys has defective orders. That's how important in the, Ameri in the Anglican Church is apostolic succession. Even today, when there's a bishop is consecrated, you have a chief consecrator, which is usually a presiding bishop, doesn't have to be, and then other, two other bishops that are, are co-consecrators, always three. You can have more, but there's always at least three. Why? In case one of them is broke. <laughs> in case one of them doesn't have uh, a, a valid orders. In 1783, the American War ends. Um, and then general convention of the, uh, of the Episcopal Church, of the Church in England, which is now separate, doesn't call itself the Church of England and the United States. They, they don't even call themselves the Anglican Church of the United States. They call themselves the Protestant Episcopal Church of America. Now, why do you think they didn't call themselves the Anglican Church of the United States? There's a good reason for it. Why do you think? Well, yeah, by this, well, that's true. But they want to report to the king or queen. By this time, you did, not, you did not have to take an oath of loyalty to the king. But we just fought a war with these guys. And if you're going to try to grow a church, the last thing you would be is an Anglican, right? Because you would have been considered suspect. And so they, they called themselves the Episcopal Church. Now, where'd they get that word from? The church in Scotland had the same issue. They didn't want to call themselves Anglicans, so they called themselves the Scottish Episcopal Church. And the word Episcopal, anybody know what the word Episcopal means? It's a, it means bishops. The word Episcopal is from the Greek, Greek word episkopos, which is a Greek word which means bishop. So they, they called themselves in 1780, at, at the first convention in 1789 in Philadelphia, the first general convention, which is the governing body of the Episcopal Church. The first name was the Protestant Episcopal Church in the United States of America. In 1967, they dropped Protestant, and they just called them, and now we're just the Episcopal Church. Make sense? I think that's it. I'm going to do a lot today. Um, yeah, any questions? You guys seem sleepy today. Am I going too fast? What's that? I said we are in awe. Yeah, just soaking it all in. Um, it's, in it's really fascinating. We're going to get into this next week, the growth of the American church a little bit. But an interesting thing is the Episcopal church actually remained pretty small because of the connection with England, right? And that whole people were suspicious of the church of, of the Episcopal church because of the connection with the church of England. Uh, it was actually pretty small until after World War II, and then it just exploded. Um, and the Episcopal church has historically been... 
um, uh, a church of very, uh, not a whole lot of people, but huge influence. I think something like 75% of American presidents have been Episcopalians. Donald Trump, whatever you think of him, good or bad, is immaterial, but he goes to an Episcopal church in West Palm Beach. It's where he was married. Uh, so uh, George Bush, Episcopalian. George Bush Sr., Episcopalian. Ronald Reagan, Episcopalian. Um, George Washington, Episcopalian. So it's kind of funny. Uh, and, if you, and the Episcopal Church has always been uh, that sort of thread and, and also um, pretty wealthy. You may not know this. Uh, you know, you've heard of Wall Street, right? Okay, there is uh, Wall Street is, uh, is actually where all the financial stuff takes place. There is a church in Wall Street, some of you have been there, called Trinity Episcopal Church Wall Street. Anybody heard of it? Yeah. Okay, Trinity Wall Street. Not a very big building, but that, uh, that land was given by the Queen back when it was in Church of England parish. And so Trinity Wall Street owns Wall Street. And all that property on Wall Street, that's right, and the wealthiest church in all Christendom. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I mean, they, it is. What's that? And a very small congregation. It's really a shame. They have a, they have a whole corporation, Trinity Episcopal Church, Trinity Wall Street, has a whole corporation with a, a CEO and a board that manages the money. I have no idea what they're worth, but it's probably in the billions, I would imagine. Do you have any idea, Don? Many billions. Many billions. What about their that I can't comment on, but they do wonderful things. Yeah, they do. Uh, they do a very. They're very philanthropic. They give away a lot of money. Um, how orthodox? I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, I don't know the rector there. Although interestingly, interestingly, the former rector of Trinity Wall Street was just here about a month ago. He came through. I didn't. I, he introduced himself to me. I got his business card. Nice guy. Um, they have a new rector there now. Uh, but anyway. Um, Kind of funny thing. So, Don, and I'll get you, Chris. Oh, uh, uh, who can participate in what? I'm sorry. It's okay. Communion. Communion said oh, 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 no, that's a good question. Okay, so Don's question to me was, does the rector have discretion over who can and who cannot receive communion? The answer is, well, wait a minute. <laughs> the answer is, the standard of to receive communion is baptism. Used to be confirmation, it's not anymore. But if you are a ba if you are a Christian baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit then yes, you can receive communion in an Episcopal church. If you are baptized a Mormon, because they're not Trinitarians. Um, so that's that. So Don, to answer your question, the answer is yes. If you are a Methodist, a, a whatever, Presbyterian, a Lutheran, a, an Evangelical who's baptized in the name of the Trinity, sure, you can receive communion. The rector can, uh, can prevent somebody from receiving communion by excommunication. That is a that's a disciplinary matter. And, it, and there are two, uh, well, if a per, if the, and it's right in the prayer book. Uh, the rector can uh, deny communion to somebody if they are uh, at odds with another member of the congregation and refuse to be restored. Uh, that the rector can do, and I've had to do it. Uh, uh, that people always leave when you do that. Uh, but, that but the point of it is not to, be, not to be vindictive. The point of it is, you know, Bill, if you can't get along with mugs and you can't restore, it has to come to my attention. And if you were, uh, just, because I know you. So in that case, in that case, the rector can deny communion with the intention of bringing both parties to repentance uh, and then notify the bishop. So in that case, yes, the rector can deny. Uh, but it's a disciplinary matter. And the, and the intention being to, to restore unity in the, in the body. Did you ever notice, one quick, let me just say one quick thing. You know, ever notice liturgically 
in the church, when we, after the priest pronounces absolution, we exchange the peace. The purpose of that is now that you have claimed Jesus has forgiven you from your sins and you've forgiven everybody else, if you are at odds with another member of the congregation, get off your fanny and go and be restored to that person before you receive communion. That's the th Maybe I'll mention that today, the liturgical minute. That's the purpose of it. But Don, you've got a question. Yes, sir. That's correct. I would say to them, we need to get you baptized. I've actually said that. So, and, and in fact, if I become aware of that, I will notify them. And the reason is not to be vindictive. The reason is because Paul says, uh, if you eat and drink of the body unworthily, you're eating and drinking damnation upon yourself. And let me put it to you like this. If a person receives communion and it's the body of Christ, and that person is not a Christian, that's dangerous for them. According to Paul, anyway. Uh, so I would say to somebody, and this has happened, people's children have received communion, and I'll say to them later, hey, wait, um, and again, this is not meant to be vindictive, I would love to baptize you or your children, but please don't let them receive communion until they're baptized, because it might be dangerous for them, to be perfectly honest. Um, that's what Paul says. So that's the only reason I would, I would deny it. It wouldn't be out of a matter, it's not meant to be exclusionary or vindictive, it's actually meant to be, help them not be damaged by receiving something which they're not able to receive on their own goodness, their own merit. Is that clear? Make sense? Clear. Okay, but you don't like it. <laughs> okay. Oh, I totally agree. I totally agree, but that's, that's a very good point. But let's, but let's hang on a second. Baptism, in our understanding, is not, not just a consent to follow Jesus. It is actually a removal of original sin. And so until that baptism, that's why we baptize babies. They don't know what they're doing. But once you baptize a person, they are, that original sin, the mark, if you will, the stain is removed, not by what they've done, but by what Jesus has done for them, right? So until that takes place, in an Anglican view of baptism, that person is essentially fallen. And you don't want to give them communion because it might actually be dangerous to them. Again, it all depends, it all comes back to ecclesiology, right? What's your understanding of how this stuff works? Good conversation. Anybody else? Bruce. Okay, that, we're going to get into that more next week, but Bruce asked a good question. What is the relationship today between the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion and the Church of England? Historically, the Anglican Communion is, is after the Americas, begins to expand worldwide during the Victorian time when, the church, when England was just planting colonies all over the world. They would bring the church with them, plant churches. Um, the, the Anglican Communion are all of those churches that were planted by Anglicans, they come together once every 10 years because the Archbishop of Canterbury invites your bishop to come. So the way historically the Anglican communion has been defined is the Archbishop of Canterbury invites your bishop to come to the Lambeth meeting every 10 years. That's what makes an Anglican an Anglican. So to answer your question, has Greg Brewer, Bishop Brewer, been invited to Lambeth? Yes. Has the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church been invited? Yes, he has. So we would call ourselves Anglicans based upon the fact that the Bishop, Archbishop of Canterbury has invited our bishops to attend the Lambeth Conference. Is that clear? There are some denominations, like this is where we get into the, um, the ACNA group, which we're going to talk about more later, but the split church from here, that group, their, bishop, their bishops have not been invited to Lambeth. As, as, as Anglican bishops, they've been there as observers, and it gets complicated because they're under overseas bishops, and it gets a little, it's just kind of an un... It's kind of an amorphous situation, but the, but the short answer to your question is, the historical definition of an Anglican is that your bishop is invited to the Lambeth Conference. There are only two churches in this 
in Vero Beach that are under bishops that have been invited to the Anglican Communion, Trinity Vero and All Saints uh, St. Augustine's. That's it. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Man, I gotta run. Oh yeah, I use, that's a good point. Back in the 1928 prayer book, you used to not be able to receive communion until you were confirmed. Remember, remember that when you were older? Uh, that was changed. It's called the age of discretion, when a person can actually consent to what they're doing. That has been changed. What we do now is uh, baptism is the only necessary thing to receive communion. I try to wait until children are at the age of having an understanding of what they're doing before they do it. Do they have to be? No. But I, I think for their own sake, it's, if they say, you know, like Gracie, for example, she was eight or nine when she wanted, maybe she's younger than that, but she wanted to receive communion. And I said, okay, do you believe it's the body and blood of Jesus? She said, absolutely. Okay. So then, and, and what I usually do is we have a, a first Holy Communion class once a year, right around Thanksgiving, when we usually train the kids, and then after that they can receive. But they can receive regardless if they want to, if they're baptized. Is that clear, everybody? So as a pastoral matter, I usually ask them to wait until they know what they're doing, but I would never refuse it if somebody came up as a baptized child. Yes, you can, yes, you can. Yeah, the Orthodox Church, the Orthodox, they actually give communion to infants um, uh, as a matter of practice. So anything else? I gotta run, but uh, one more, yes, Muggs, one more quick one, yeah? That's a good question. So Muggs, uh, uh, the, again, coming back to the, to being in a state of uh, readiness to receive the sacrament. The reason that we do the confession of sin right before communion is that we have been shriven or forgiven before we receive communion. So Muggs made an observation she saw me do once. A person I saw came in after the confession had been said, they were really late for church. They came to the rail to receive. When I got to them, I stopped, said the prayer of confession with that person, pronounced absolution over them, and then administered communion. And that's why. So you need, again, this is, uh, no, that's the way it goes. <laughs> Any, anything else? Any other observations? Okay, thank you all for being here. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation, we ask that you like, subscribe, or share this message. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity Episcopal Church, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.